Welcome to Life Centered, a podcast about how looking to the natural world is impacting technology, society, and how we live our lives. I'm Tim McGee, and in this episode, Amelia Tracy and I talk with Kathy Zarsky. Kathy is founder of the Austin, Texas-based company Holos, and as strategy and systems designer, she has worked with some of the most progressive architecture and design firms on the planet. She is also founder of Biomimicry Texas, a regional network that brings together people to be inspired by and stimulate biomimicry within education and enterprise. I consider myself lucky to have known and worked with Kathy for years, and today we talked about the importance of storytelling, finding time to slow down in nature, and a message of hope we think all children need to hear. Enjoy. I take a walk here every morning with my 10-year-old son. I'm homeschooling this year. And so that's how we start our day. And and, um, late September, early October is when we have this, um, we have a couple of varieties of wild orchid that start to peek out of the grasses. And they're small, and they have a helical bloom cluster that goes up the stalk. And if you aren't paying attention, you'll miss them because they aren't there for very long. They might be around for a couple weeks, but they're, they're, they're nestled in these other tall prairie grasses that we have around here. I didn't take these kinds of walks as a kid where I grew up. I just loved being outside and I loved the way that it made me feel, but I wasn't really like thoughtfully connecting um, to the place the way, the way that I am now with my, with my children. Yeah. Have you guys heard of um, the Alliance for Wild Ethics? No, but I am scribbling that one down right now. Yeah, you have to. Um, there's a couple of people who uh, kind of are point people at that organization. But essentially, their work is to rediscover and collectively remember through oral narration stories of place and context because they believe that the way that we're going to solve climate change (laughs) is to come together in community through storytelling, but it has to be storytelling through oral narration. So it can't be read, it can't be, it has to be somebody saying the story because of the way that our bodies remember when when we're told a story from another person of stories of context and place. Because when we know about the history of the place through story, we remember it and we know it differently than, you know, through a textbook or, or other, you know, modalities. Um, and so their, their work is really to bring, you know, naturalists and biologists into storytelling, but also just bring elders and bring people who know places really well to tell really compelling stories of places so that we can start to remember uh, how exciting it is to be wherever we end up being. <laughs> um, so I encourage you to look them look them up. I found them a couple of weeks ago, and um, David Abram, I think, is the name of the founder, and he's down in the, the Rockies. But I, I love that that marriage of narration um, for the sake of really getting into a place. Yeah, coincidentally, a couple of years ago, there was a um, a gathering of several. Biomimicry practitioners and community organizers through this network that's still building around the world. And we were in uh, San Francisco, just outside of San Francisco at a retreat. And one of the biggest areas of interest among all of us collectively was tapping into indigenous wisdom and bringing back a lot of these stories. And again, remembering what we've forgotten that's um, really best learned through experience because you also, I think part of the way our body 
um, responds and remembers those things to you is that if you are in a situation where there's a real person delivering this information and relating it to themselves, now you have a relationship with this person that makes that story have a different meaning to you than it would if it was delivered in another way. You know, it it, it doesn't have the same perhaps purpose or, or meaning because it's it's loose and it's floating without a connection to something else that you you know that you can touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it, this conversation reminds me of um, the time I spent in Australia. And one of the things that the indigenous uh, Australians, the aboriginals, would do is they would have songs. And the songs would not just be um, a song about history, but it would be a song about place. And you would only have that song in that place. And it would tell you sort of, oh, if you're here after the first rain, this thing happens then. And if you walk, you know, a, a half a mile this direction, you'll be able to find this thing going on. They have these songs that go back thousands and thousands of years. And when ecologists then uh, went to go look, um, the aboriginals were talking about, oh, this lake used to be, you know, not dry. There used to be trees here. And this is where we would find kangaroos. And when the ecologists went back and did pollen grain samples uh, back to 60,000 years, they found that the songs matched exactly what the aboriginals had, had been saying. So that this oral history of place had been a resilient way of telling stories for tens of thousands of years um, about what is going on and, and, and how can people connect to that place, uh, which I found amazing that, that that was, you know, it's not necessarily intuitive, but once you have experienced it, once you've been part of these conversations, you start to realize that we are meant to hear these. We are meant to feel it and, and be part of it and not just absorb it um, sort of intellectually, but also emotionally. Yeah, that's right. That's actually something that I'm really excited about right now, which is the confluence of how desire and pleasure works as we talk about restoring ecology, right? And restoring ecosystems, how, how our desire plays a main role in uh, this work. And so the more we can build in uh, pleasure into kind of some of the more mundane or, you know, rituals that we have, uh, the more we're, we're personally going to be interested in doing it, but the more we're going to be able to captivate folks that might not have the same uh, entry point as we did to, to come in and join us, right? Because at the end of the day, this is about evolution and community for our species and for so many other species, which already know how to do this in community. <laughs> yeah, that actually um, reminds me of um, something I've been a little preoccupied with for a while is the idea of joy and pleasure, what we have always known intuitively about our love of nature now as, you know, the practice of biophilia, but how, how these things that we can all agree are good are, are needed just as much to create changes in the way we operate in the world. And what I mean by that is I, I see ways in which these kinds of ideas can get planted where they, they medicate the, the way we have locked ourselves into operating in the world. We 
we want people to put in long work hours and um, to be productive because we're, you know, we're, we're in the process of consuming something, whether it's virtual or real, that um, like this, this busybody stuff that we just have to do. And I think there's, there's got to be something about lending experience to our lives that is about quality of life versus the quality in which we live our life in order to produce. I, I think it's helping me kind of get a sense of my own purpose. Like what does my, my professional and, and sort of life's meaning need for me and keeps bringing me back to children and families. I think more and more too, where the ideas of questioning how our children should operate, what they normalize in the world. It sounds like you're, you've made a substantial decision to homeschool this year. So how kind of slowing down to cater your life towards kind of walking in the footsteps of what you believe in, in terms of orienting back into nature, it sounds like, works for you, what it looks like. You know, we, we know you have a, a walking ritual with your son in the morning, um, but I feel like that's as important as everything else is how we actually implement it into our lives. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the most beneficial things all of us could do is just find ways to slow our lives down. The impact of just slowing down everything offers rewards that just give us time that we lack to do the simple things. You know, if, if one of the most satisfying things that you could do all day long is to just fill your lungs up with some fresh air and have a bit of solitude where your mind is just free from all of the stresses that you carry around, like that's a that's a really important thing to be able to have time to do. Uh, and I live in a semi-rural area, and so it's easier for me to say than it is for most other people because I, I don't hear all the same sounds. I don't see all of the same hustle and bustle. But again, I think there's a pace that's been imposed on societies everywhere that makes it harder and harder for us to regain some of that. So in a, and, I, and I don't think it's, it's an either or. It's, it's finding ways to incorporate more of these things into our life while we still are going about doing the things that um, are necessary for us to do every day. You know, we're still going to maintain all of these different jobs and industries and so forth, and transformation doesn't happen overnight. So there's this growing process. And part of what I have come to discover, which I thought was just me for a long time, is I've um, gone out and, and shared sort of my, you know, biomimicry journey, which is now morphing into something that I don't have a, a real um, good descriptor for, um, because biomimicry is just one, uh, it's just one tool, it's one perspective and methodology that you, that enriches other things that you do. It's not a substitute for, it's an enrichment uh, process for people, is how many families and professionals um, I have met that have sensed that it is engaging across, you know, every demographic category, you know, age, race, gender, it just doesn't really seem to matter. Like there's, and, and why we aren't allowing more of the experience, it really pulls people in where you find joy, the discovery and the curiosity. 
to be something that you can share together. I think one of the hardest things that working families face is that our profession exists over here in this corner of our life. Our families are over here and we're pulled to network and to have, you know, ongoing um, continuing education or to attend conferences or um, some other kind of skill, you know, training that we have, or you're on some leadership trajectory and it's about management, whatever it is, like these things compete and they don't really lend themselves much to um, enriching that other part of your life. So this pace thing and, and how you live in the world, again, where it's not just nature there to medicate all of the unintended consequences that this pace and our decisions have brought about, but how they become big quality of, of life values that we just cling to and demand are, are there again and the, to bridge those corners of our lives. Not everyone has a family and is raising children, but I think it's still a we're still forced into making choices where we're making too many compromises. Yeah. Taryn Mead, we interviewed her. She's doing a PhD. <laughs> one, of, one of the components of her PhD work is how fragmented and fractionalized we are as individuals and how that plays into how we can, how quickly and how effectively we can move uh, towards a sustainable future in exactly the same vein that you're talking about. How do you slow down or how do you manage your time given your work? And I also want to dive into your work a a little bit and tell us a little bit about what you actually do um, with your work time these days. I have my own business, which came about through a very frustrating experience working in the design and construction industry where talk of sustainability was really bubbling up. It was everywhere early in my career was when first Green Build, the U.S. Green Building Council conference took place here in Austin. Austin has the first green building rating program in the country and has been a model for um, programs all over the country and, and all over the world. And it just struck me as I was, you know, simultaneously trying to connect to this place it was just all of this rhetoric sort of tangled in the way we talked about sustainability. They made it very clear to me that people really didn't have the connection to place and the environment and, and all of the terms and the values that were just randomly sort of peppered throughout these statements, you know, vision statements and mission statements and big goals and objectives. Um, we were really referring back to design elements and aesthetics and um you know if we could take a picture of something it it had kind of a a utopian disconnected just feeling about it and I wasn't connecting to it in quite the way that I I needed to and I heard Herbert Herbert Dreisettel speak who's um a German landscape architect talk about water and ecology at this first green build and brought me back to nature's role in our lives and in our designs and and not this sort of separate thing. And um, so the multidisciplinary thing became a very juicy, juicy area of interest for me. I didn't know what to do with it. And, but anyway, one thing led to another and I, I left the design and construction 
practice as a project manager. My background is architecture. I got into project management and construction doing large commercial work and didn't really feel like I was an adequate lever in the system at that time. So I bumped into Chris Allen, who's somebody that uh, was first working alongside Janine Benyus in Montana. And he just told me to follow this. He just sensed that I had a hunger for something something more. And so my practice as I found opportunities to get biomimicry training, incorporated ways to advise and really essentially provide support. And what I love doing is keeping a systems-wide view of different industries, socioeconomic, all of the different factors and variables that really seem to have an impact that maybe one particular discipline doesn't have any ownership of but needs to be aware of so that they can engage outside of their normal circles. Because if we're really wanting to uh, sort of change this trajectory, change directions, slow you know, our pace, whatever those appropriate objectives are for those situations, that kind of context, that kind of of connecting and sort of the, the digging for insights and, and prompting people to make their own discoveries where they then do feel a sense of ownership for what they can see. Holos is a company that tries to support that process, which is both qualitative and quantitative. I also have a, a biomimicry network here called Biomimicry Texas, which has gone through periods of bursts of activity and then long extended periods of dormancy. And we're coming up on one of our bursts of activity again around South by Southwest Eco. But this year, we have several new partnerships that have formed with us where we have families in nature. We have an artist community that has a YouTube channel called Art TV. We have a new fiscal sponsor with the Center for Maximum Potential Building Systems, uh, where we're all going to be collaborating to support the new Global Biomimicry Design Challenge on climate change. And so the, the resources and the trainings and the outreach that we can have collectively is a really exciting thing that we'll be um, working on for the next uh, two years. One of the things I've always been amazed with uh, in working with you is the exa exactly what you were saying, the ability to see these disparate different fields capture them and present them in a way that allows teams to engage. Yeah, and I, I've had successes and failures in um, proceeding down this path because it isn't, it isn't a process that people are accustomed to. We have formulas for how we produce what's been asked of us. We have contracts that stipulate timeframes and um, deliverables. You know, it's a clunky system um, with individual personalities that, you know, all come to the process that you're, you're trying to influence with their own set of expectations and, and, and skill sets. And uh, sometimes the recipe comes together and things are, are fluid and it's exciting. Um, and, and sometimes you hit a wall that you couldn't foresee because you you walked into something that seemed perfectly suited um, to allow this to unfold. But again, I, I I think that's something we all share in whatever endeavors we um, we take on. So I've learned from that, and you know one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is 
enthusiasm and, you know, a rich set of resources and interpretations and, you know, a robust toolbox aren't, you know, like it's still just stuff that you're throwing in the mix. It really does come down to commitment in the right places to put things into motion so that it all works coherently together. And understanding at the outset, how do those commitments come about? Who makes them? Is it an executive level kind of decision? Is it, a, is it something that's more of a, of a groundswell from the team that's taking on some of that process, you know, managing the day-to-day activities? That's a case-by-case situation. And so I think there has to be a bit more of an upfront conversation about the process so that everyone feels that they have um, experienced some level of success. Right. This was true for me even you know, before the big sustainability objectives um, were part of, of my role when I was just managing a, a project. There are different, different ways to go about that, and we all kind of have to work to our strengths and the things that um, we know other people will respond to that perhaps has been lacking in that mix. Is there a time when you've taken a team outdoors somewhere and seen a transition or, tr- or connected them to a place um, that's been effective as a, as a tool? Yeah. So, I mean, the project that you and I worked on here in Austin with is a perfect example of a team that has come up with a story of place narrative that has really influenced the way they sense their design process. It is, you know, now now whether an outside observer will ever sense that same sense of place that inspired their, their design, that has yet to be seen, but it was like their intellectual fuel for this whole process. And I think they now walk their day-to-day lives having a different sense of this place that they would not have otherwise have had. One of the things that I am looking for is, you know, are are you building a way where my kids and your kids can work on the same projects together? Can I bring my kids somewhere with me where we can engage together and, and do some of this exploration that we've been talking about? Or um, are you are you at all thinking of formalizing any of these materials or exercises that you're working on, um, even in a small way, like take your kid for a walk for 10 minutes every morning and notice XYZ. I, I'm just curious because I'm I'm looking for those kinds of activities myself. I am and it's I I I get the sense that it is just slowly gonna become the bigger focus over time. So a couple of things that you can expect to see in the coming weeks as we approach South by Eco is on Biomimicry Texas Facebook page. We'll be posting some announcements of um, some things that we're planning, how to get involved, how to support us. We're developing a Patreon page to help us fund some of the different initiatives. It will also help us gauge what people's interests are so that, you know, it's not just a self-serving thing, but it really does kind of tap into what we know the audience wants and, you know, are we capable of, of doing that? 
Um, but we also have um, some legacy funding coming in, coming into our organization. And one of the big goals of anyone that funds an organization like ours should be to help spread the outreach and the way for other people to connect with your work. So finding really critical partners that can be part of the, the delivery channels for these things is key because we can't clearly be everywhere. And a lot of other people are better you know, situated to be able to do certain things um, that perhaps we develop, but they need to be the delivery agent or the other way around. Um, so all of those kinds of relationships where we want to be forming. So whether it's with individual families or whether it's with another organization where you are, Tim, that we should be connected to, it will all depend. Yeah. Um, but we're, we've got a, a, a few different arts and crafts that we are looking at currently. When it comes to taking walks, one of the biggest mistakes that I have made is trying to convince myself that I knew what these kids needed to get out of it. You know, all you have to do is take a walk with your kid and get their feedback and listen to what they do when they're on that walk with you to start to figure out how to interact with them and to help them see and explore and ask questions. And one of the ways that we've found to be able to do this is to pick a topic. It's not an organism, but it's a feature perhaps of something. Um, and it can be a surface. And we just want to go around and explore different surfaces. And they can talk about where they saw the surface, what they first, you know, thought about that surface. You know, we all know about the sketching and journaling kinds of things. But if you can lead them down a path to see more than what they initially see, you can have the pocket lenses. I've got a couple of different microscopes now at my disposal where we can bring things back to the office. Or I can even take a laptop or an iPad out and hook up a little um, pocket scope that you know just plugs in on a USB and I can get this big huge picture on my on my laptop and I can scale it I can do all this cool stuff those things are really really fun for kids but then thinking about now what does that information mean what does it do what does it look like at different scales um, there's a really cool group that did a, a kids kind of a coloring stenciling book a couple of years ago that was seed pods and things like this and so we're looking for some of those patterns as well that allow us to sort of marry some things up to see how they they play together. That stuff is really fun and kids really like come alive when you just give them an opportunity to get there all by themselves. So is there media of some kind, a book, a movie, a documentary right now that really has you energized? I've been reading a lot of Wendell Berry over the last year. I have a, a good friend, Laura Dunn, with Two Birds Film that produced a documentary, really a, a portrait of a film about Wendell Berry called The Seer, and I think they just changed the name um, to Look and See is how it will, when it gets um, more broadly distributed, we look and see. Very, very moving um, film that's had me re-examining a lot of my childhood agrarian lifestyles, um, connection to place, pace of life, all of those kinds of things. So um, pick up anything, Wendell Berry, and just sit down and, and enjoy the read. 
Um, we're doing a lot of audiobooks, which is a great way for me to connect around clever storytelling and getting into the mind of a child. That makes it easier for me to discuss certain things with kids. A great one we're listening to right now is called Cosmic. Um, and that's all I'll say about it, but it's, it's been a really fun one for us very recently. Yeah. And I think I mentioned earlier, we're, we're doing a lot of, um, hands on sort of discovery making kinds of stuff. So we're Tim Prentice, origami and kirigami. Everything is a big thing for us right now, including how to maybe generate kirigami type membranes using laser cutting techniques. Uh, so we're really kind of just prepping our, our, our minds with, you know, materials and folds and what, what the possibilities are and doing a lot of playful stuff. So my desk and my floor are just littered with stuff like that. Uh, a great one that kind of gets your, your brain kind of geared up for that is, uh, I don't know if you are familiar with Rob Kessler's photography in his books. He has one on pollen and one on seeds. He's collaborated with a couple of different people for each of them, but Oh, yeah. They are these, you know, these gorgeous photographs. And Stephen Vogel has some stuff, too, um, like Life of a Leaf is kind of like this, but they're not as graphically just compelling. But these books give you this amazing detail of the things that we would just walk by and not notice. But when you see the intricacy of, you know, pollen grain or, a, you know, a seed and how diverse they are, and then you get the very readable explanation of why it is the way that it is. Again, I think it's appealing to everybody, and suddenly it makes all of these other art forms much more kind of tangible. This, it's like this invitation to explore something that you didn't know had relevance to, you know, biology. It's like Ernst Haeckel's work. You know, you just see everything in a new light when you can see how the origins of origami really did take inspiration from something like like this if you were able to splice in one gene or characteristic from any organism on earth into people what would it be and why that is a really hard question so the one that i was thinking about earlier today was if we could tune our skin to help us regulate temperature um, and, and um, signal information more vividly than we do now. Like roadrunners here are, you know, we have a couple of resident roadrunners on our property and they can lift up these light colored feathers on the back of their neck to expose this dark, dark patch of skin um, so that it warms up to help them regulate their temperature. You know, I think about trends and fashion and how much we do to you know display something on our bodies and like if our skin could just <laughs> be a more vivid expression that would change with our with our temperature and our moods and all of those things like what would the ramifications have been to all of these other industries um, that thrive purely to keep us clothed and um, sporting a certain fashion I find that a very interesting uh, question to ponder. You could apply that to any trait, I suppose, if we were to embed it. What, what would that have made different about um, the world that we've experienced? Oh, that's like a book. Oh, I love that. What if we had squid skin 
and and that's a a kid's book and it explores like what would it be if we all had the the same abilities that cuttlefish or an octopus or squid have to yeah change color just the texture and oh that's that's a crazy i've never thought of that before i love it yeah i'd love to co-author like a whole series of things like that um you know, with my with my kiddo, the one that shares, you know, this vivid imagination with me. If you could teleport anywhere for one hour and then be teleported back, where would you go? Mm-hmm. That was, that's another really tough one. I... I think it would be really cool to go back and be a fly on the wall when my parents were kids, see what their life was like and how they engaged with the world, to have a a different um, sense of connection to the things that shaped them and maybe how simple and or complex their world was to them. Everything is relative, right? Um, kind of goes back to the whole empathy thing that uh, is going to be a persistent response. <laughs> I get the feeling. Well, and, uh, and I mean, that's interesting in a way because for me, you know, that's akin to some of the travel things we were talking about before. Like they, they lived in a whole different world in a way. And so it's getting to experience that in a very personal way. Yeah. And I think we, we miss out when, we oversimplify what things are to us. When, you know, a mother is, you know, just simply mom to you her whole life, when she had this whole other life before you came along, or, um, you know, a, a snake is this thing to be feared because you know some of them are venomous and surely if they bit you, it would hurt. Um, like we, um, we create myths and stories. <laughs> about things and what they mean without really taking the time uh, to understand more, to nurture a relationship, to, and, you know, just to understand the basis for why we think what we do or why we haven't allowed someone or something to be so much more than the name we, again, have applied to it. And since my parents are no longer here, uh, I think about them a lot and, the kinds of things I wish I knew, you know, like, uh, cause a lot of those stories now have left with them. What is one of the most harmful things we are doing today, but we don't realize it. Yeah. Uh, that's a really great question. Really thought compelling press question, thought provoking question. Does any other species on the planet like have the imagination that we do. Our imagination can be one of the most marvelous blessings ever, and it can also be a curse because we actually create worlds within worlds that are very real to us. Again, they can be virtual, they can be these tangible things, and we can box out other kinds of things. And so we we aren't necessarily thinking about the unintended consequences or that there could be consequences. So the you know, the, the application of our imagination that is sort of myopic and short-sighted 
that is, you know, again, about this race to the top, and I don't even know what the top is. Uh, I think that's a very, very harmful sort of behavior that we all exhibit in the world, and it's unique to us. So instead, you know, the counter behavior to that is, is simply thinking about the conditions that are, that are beneficial. What are the beneficial outcomes we would like to see as a result of our behavior or this, you know, this action that we're going to take? If I were to try to pair it with how I think that there's a solution to that. Yeah. I think our, our behavior and lack of understanding about what drives our behavior and the decisions that we make, I think is one of the most harmful things that we do. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting that that, that answer has come up again and again in the podcast, not, not just, um, this is a new way of thinking about it, that it's our imagination and our ability to, uh, sort of frame our world and that lack of, uh, uh, maybe engagement or results or um, yeah, that, that there's something there that seems to be a very common theme. We could bring our fictions to life. I mean, that is that alone is a crazy thought to me is we can imagine it in our heads and then we can make it so. Right. And, and more so on that, the way that our brains work, so I'm told, is that the power of what happens in our brains Neurologically, when we imagine things, we're setting neural pathways in the same way that that get set when we actually do experience them. Right. So the power of imagination is arguably as important as experience in terms of what we allow ourselves to do moving forward in terms of expansiveness. Yeah, but think about some people's imagination that's fueled by fears uh, they harbor, which might be misguided and totally unnecessary, or the visions and the imagination that don't think, again, about unintended potential consequences. The thought of the whole system and the component that you're contributing to it operating within that whole. These are big mental leaps for people that we haven't prepared people for. We aren't trained to be thinking about how the component is a part of something greater that ha takes on whole other performance characteristics once they're all sort of there and the gears are moving or things are reacting to them. And, you know, there's, a, uh, there's this whole model within education to uh, train people for jobs versus living in the world. And then there's this reality about once people are, are grown and, and, and living and operating and trying to earn a job, like jobs and industries and all of these things are changing so rapidly. It's like, what are we even preparing them for anymore? Do we even, do we even know? And so we have a clash of, of educational model and um, living reality um, and this whole futurist sort of thing that make it a pretty perplexing thing. So I think if ever there was a time for us to kind of harness our imaginations in a way that made some of those mental leaps a little bit easier for people um, to grasp or live within. Yeah, and I wish I had the bigger answer for that. I'm just gonna start with playing with my kids more. 
I think that's critical, you guys. I don't have kids, but something as I really recently, as I kind of think about this whole desire aspect, I believe that that kids that are born today are sort of, I hate using computer-related terms, but pre-wired for doing this work. Like they're coming into being because they're bringing gifts that we need desperately. Um, And so maybe not saying it so pessimistically, but saying to them, communicating, maybe not even in words, but that the world isn't set up to be able to acknowledge the gifts that they're giving to us, but they have to give them to us anyway, right? Like they have to bloom regardless of how much might be against, might, might be perceived uh, to be against them blooming to their full capacity as beings coming into the world. Right. And like that has to be a part of our dialogue with young people, which is like what you're experiencing, the people who sort of quote unquote run the show never experienced, but that doesn't make what you're experiencing any less important. And we desperately need you to shout from the roof what your experience is because we need to be able to articulate that. That is the most beautifully said um, and hopeful thing I have heard in the longest time. I believe it's true. I think we need to tell our kids as young as possible that the world's not, like, that they're not going to get a whole bunch of yeses, but that doesn't mean that they can't bloom. They have to bloom. It's part of, it's part of how they're work, they're wired biologically, you know? Well, say that loud everywhere you go, because (laughs) kids need messages of hope right now. It's, um, yeah, despite all of the crap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a really depressing thing for parents, and I think for um, for everyone to think about the messages that permeate, you know, every communication, you know, outlet everywhere. It's just that message of hope is, is so true. It's so powerful. It's so right on. I don't think it's even hopeful truths that need to be spoken more loudly. Yeah. I, it's definitely not exclusive to young people, although I think it needs to be like mandated as a parent, you have to take say this. It's definitely true for everybody, right? Regardless of when you get that message. But if you don't have to go through the unwinding of not fitting in because you have gifts that the world isn't ready for, it just shaves off all those wrinkles and all of that, you know, digestive disease, <laughs> all of the things that we do to ourselves because we're we're constipated because the world isn't ready for us, you know? Oh, there's another book. <laughs> yeah. I like to tell it like it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. One last question, Kathy, which was when do you feel most connected to the world? Right here when I'm when I'm outside, there's something really magical about visiting a place repeatedly and watching it change and always discovering something new. It can be looking at the sky. It can be, you know, finally noticing the, the seasonal. You know, like it, it just dawned on me a couple of weeks ago that this is the time of year that those wild orchids are about to come up. I knew that they came up every year, but like I've now seen them enough where I'm remembering that it's this time of year. We have wild orchids that are getting ready um, to come up. I have a I have a piece of 
property out in the on the edge of the Texas Hill Country where these things are kind of rare sightings because the land has been so disturbed. But we still have a lot of prairie grasses and a lot of wild areas. And so we see these wild orchids and it's it's very special when they pop up because it's this very temporary kind of thing. And there are these beautifully designed orchids. They have a helical shape to them. Um, some of them are perfect, uh, perfectly formed um, helixes. So they're, they're just, you know, those kinds of things is finding the magic in the ordinary, things that you are that intimate with that always offer up something for you um, to appreciate. It's been a challenging climate, literally, when we talk about the drought that we had here in 2011 that California is seeing now. And you see that unfold for years afterwards. Um, there hasn't been, you know, two years the same as long as my memory serves me living here. And so I think that's what makes me feel really connected is, is being somewhere where it's intimate. I feel vulnerable here because I've never been more humbled by just being in awe with the ordinary. Is there any place online where people can find you or where should you, where should we send listeners so they can either read more about you or connect with you in some way? Uh, well, please follow us on Biomimicry TX on Facebook um, because we will have some announcements coming out there soon about some new activities uh, uh, coming forward and where organizations like mine, Holos, um, can plug in and, and, and play a more prominent role. Certainly on LinkedIn is a great place to connect with me professionally, and it's Kathy with a K, Zarsky. I'm also revamping my... Uh, my business website. So all that's to come. But if you want to follow holoscollaborative.com or check out that website, it's a little outdated right now, but it'll be getting a facelift here before the end of the year. Fantastic. I will put all of those in the show notes for people to follow. Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having the interest for talking with someone like me and others that are always so animated when we get the chance to share our passions. I'm excited about what you're into and, and hopefully this is one, this is the first of many. Yeah. Well, and best of luck to you both. I can't wait to listen to the whole series start to unfold and who you're going to have next. I've, I've really enjoyed it and I'm glad to be a part of it. So thank you. And that's a wrap on episode six with Kathy Zarsky. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And as always, thank you for listening all the way to the end. Life-Centered Podcasts can now be found on iTunes. And if you liked what you heard, it really does help us out to give us a rating, make a few comments, or share the link with those you think might enjoy our podcast. Until next time, this is Tim saying over and out.